and welcome to Real Living. This is Lavinia Spirito with Mary Lou Nemechek, and we're going to talk about Eucharistic Revival. Now, this may not be the first uh, show that, you could, that you've heard about Eucharistic Revival, and it may not be the last one. Um, and it may not be the only one that we do on Eucharistic Revival. I think that we might revisit this topic um, over the months of this U.S. Eucharistic Revival period. If you just climbed up in from out underneath a rock, you may understand, you may know that, or you may not know, that Pope Francis decreed three years of Eucharistic revival in the United, well, the United States, the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, decreed a Eucharistic revival, which I think is going to hook into a worldwide Eucharistic revival. And it's three years. And um, do you know what year we're in? We're in the second year, actually. We're in the second year, okay. So, and it started with the Eucharistic Congress in Budapest last year. I know because two of my dear friends went there and spoke there. Mary Healy and Barbara Heil spoke at the Eucharistic Congress in Budapest. And, uh, you know, they said from the environment in the Congress, it looks like there's a lot of work to be done to bring people up to an understanding of exactly what the Eucharist is. And I think that this uh, Eucharistic revival thing is partially in response to polls that you and I have seen, right, about right. Uh, U.S. Catholics and their perceptions about the Eucharist. Do you remember what those polls said? Um, very few people, uh, Catholics, believed in in the transubstantiation of the Eucharist. Right, and that the fact that that was really the body, really blood, the body, soul, and blood, divinity. soul, and divinity, yes. Of the Lord. You know, and you know me, I, I'm like, yeah, okay. I think that calling something a revival is great, but you need to have the Holy Spirit behind you or in front of you to have a, quote, awakening or revival. Um, I don't know. I just don't. I'm a little dubious, I think, about the um, the efficacy of the so-called Eucharistic revival. Of course, the Holy Spirit can do anything. He can come in and just blow the doors off and and everybody will be, you know, will be on the same page. And I want to be open to that, but my cynical nature says uh, we're going to be doing a lot. It's going to be the usual, the church is over there doing, uh, making a big deal about something that most people do not understand and don't really care about, unfortunately, you know, yeah. it, just to put it. I, I, I agree. Baldly. I totally right? agree with that. You can't manufacture it. Yeah. But let's hope that there are things that are put in place because this is done through the parishes mm-hmm. and the different dioceses that, that. They do come up with, with I don't want to use the word program, but some way to inform people through the Holy Spirit that the Eucharist is real. It's a miracle every time we go to Mass. When we go to adoration, that is Jesus there. I think people are going to understand. You know, I, I, I always think the Holy Spirit has to open the doors. Yeah. Yes, you can have, you know, good old-fashioned devotion and all that stuff, and that's great, but... I think that um, we've kind of let the we've kind of let the the whole topic slide. I think the uh, the old fashioned idea of the of the prior centuries was well, even if they don't get it, they're going to absorb it through the environment and through the devotion of the body and all that stuff, right? Right. But now there's no devotion of the body. There's very little devotion of the body. There's Christendom has gone by the boards. Um, and this is a difficult topic to understand, you know? Right, it is. This is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord. What does that mean? You know? 
So I so think can I just suggest that that you know if you go back to scripture, if you have a foundation of Bible study and the catechism, you know if if you're reading the truth and believing the truth, you will be formed in such a way that you you will believe. Yeah, that that's and unfortunately for the four of people us. don't have that. That's for the four of us who actually do it. Yeah. What about yeah. the rest? <laughs> you know? I know that's we've talked about. This a hundred times, you know, you, you can't give what you don't have. And, you know, sadly, many of the people in the pews don't believe because they just don't know. And they don't care. Right. If they cared, if they were curious, they would hunt down the information. We live in the era of information. We live in the information era. I mean, Everything is at our fingertips on our phones. We don't even have to go home and, and go on our laptops. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I think that we just have this disregard, this civilizational disregard for whatever might be happening. Well, you know, you know the old saying, well, I saw that on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to believe whatever you pick up on Facebook or Instagram or any of the other. Which is why we should be on on Instagram and on Facebook proclaiming the truth. I mean, that's always my idea. I think you shouldn't, like, get off social media because you think it's stupid. It is stupid, okay, most of the time. But it's a great vehicle of information. So I think that we as Christians need to use all the means at our disposal to get the truth out. Right. We, um, I had signaled to you an article in Catholic World Report, and you brought up also an article in Catholic Exchange about Eucharistic revival, and uh, this guy, um, the guy who wrote this article, I thought was um, the first article, I thought was, a, you know, did you say he was a professor in Notre Dame? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, From 2003 to 2021 right. is when he retired. So he's retired, but he has some good thoughts, I think, about the whole idea of Eucharistic revival, and the idea is, he says, um, it, like one of the things he says at the beginning of the article, if what if revival depends on something more than understanding? What if the bishops were deliberate when they said on their webpage that they have two objectives, restore understanding and devotion to this great mystery? Perhaps we too must find a way to connect increased understanding with increased devotion. Because unfortunately, understanding doesn't necessarily lead to devotion. You know, That's right. That's the Holy right. Spirit brings devotion. Relationship with the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit brings devotion, right? Powerful devotion. I love the next article, the next uh, image, because um, it's your favorite. It's my favorite. It's C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, The kids visit Narnia the first time. They're kings and queens. They come back, um, and it's been a thousand years later, and they're older. And uh, Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, seemed to be, you know, a regular size when they were little. But when they come back and they're older... uh, Aslan looks bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so Aslan is the is the figure of Christ, right? So the right. idea is that every year we grow, we will find Aslan mm-hmm. bigger. bigger. So every year we grow, we will find Jesus bigger, right? We will find the faith bigger. It'll be easier to inhabit it. It'll be more, even more mysterious. You know, you know the people say, "The more I know, the more I know I don't know." Yes. That's really true, isn't it? Yes, it is. So um, I think that's. I think that we must really confess that 
just growing up doesn't mean that we grow up spiritually. I think we've seen that, right? We know plenty of adults who have no no relationship with the Lord, right? There's right. no spiritual growth, but primarily because they don't put a premium on it. You know, I keep thinking, I just keep noticing the ne- the, the nexus or the connection between uh, lack of spiritual growth or no spiritual growth at all and lack of interest. That's and right. the lack of interest is shame on us. Lack of mm-hmm. interest is shame on the church, shame on the clergy, shame on the people who were supposed to model it so that it is attractive, so that it is perpetuated, uh, so that it is something that's contagious. If we have whole generations that are not, you know, pursuing the Lord, it could also be because knowing the Lord, serving the Lord, etc., was never presented in a or preached in a way that was effective. Right. And and in here, he says that our spiritual growth is not automatic. It requires willingness. So, you know, how often do people think about that or even care about that? You know, they, they're, they're just completely tuned out to that. Well, they're tuned out. The thing is the whole, the human heart wants spiritual growth. So unfortunately, you have a lot of people seeking spiritual growth in other places. So they want to grow spiritually, but they immediately and automatically discount everything the church might offer because it's been tried and found wanting, quote unquote, right? Instead, like I thought, who said that? Chesterton? Or was it Fulton Sheen? The, the Catholic Church has not been found um, wanting. It's been, it tried and found wanting. It has not been tri- tried because it looked difficult, you know? So it's not like the people who are rejected actually know what they're doing. They don't. They've just been, unfortunately brought up in an environment in which the faith was not important or it was not relevant or whatever. So that's, that's important. So the idea is that every year we grow, we should find the Eucharist bigger. Christ in the Eucharist should be bigger. And I suppose that's what the National Eucharistic Revival intends. So he brings um, five thoughts uh, to bear on this list of things to do. And he also... Uh, brings up uh, the list, the catechism of the Catholic Church gives in sections 1328 through 1332. Well, we know it's called the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread, the synaxis, memorial, holy sacrifice, holy and divine liturgy, holy communion, and holy mass. And synaxis is is assembly. People Mm -hmm. don't know what that is. Right. So, um, he, he offers uh, five elements, and we might ha- need to go to another show to unpack all of them. The first one are thanksgiving. The second is fellowship. The third is memorial. The fourth is sacrifice. And the fifth is mystery. And he has some good thoughts, I think, that we should unpack during this time together to perhaps bring people to a closer understanding, right, of what, right. Of what you know we're talking about. So the first one is thanksgiving. What do you think that means? Eucharist, Thanksgiving. That's what. That's that was what the the early church um, gatherings concentrated on was Thanksgiving for the Eucharist, for the presence of the Eucharist, for that. It was a sacrifice of praise and Thanksgiving. It was active. Well, it wasn't and, passive. And the Greek word for Thanksgiving is Eucharist. Is right. Eucharisteso. You know, I loved. I love it when you go to Greece today. In uh, in modern Greek, if somebody says thank you, they say "epharisto." Epharisto 
is modern Greek for eucharisteso, right? For eucharisto, eucharisteo. Thank you. Thanksgiving. So I think that's the, the primary connection right there, right? Right. Thanksgiving. That um, it's me, we need to celebrate, yes, but we need to do it in a way that brings true transformation and not just make it a spectacle. Right? Right. Uh, celebration in a few Catholic circles has become not a servant of true liturgy, but a tyrant. So think about clown masses. <laughs> think about. I'm going back to some of the masses in, in, right after the council where I didn't even recognize the music or what was going on. Mm -hmm. Well, think about uh, the ladies in leotards doing liturgical dance, you know, that kind oh, of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, even just terrible music, but whatever. So um, the idea is that we celebrate, but we do it in a spirit of respect and understanding, right? Right. And um, the in the classical liturgical language of the sacramentary of Leo the Great, the word celebrare means simply to perform, which means what we celebrate a Thanksgiving. Giving. Right? Our Thanksgiving is a celebration. The angels sing their song of praise, and to it human beings add the praise of our creation because man and woman are the rational tongue of creation. Don't you love that, right? We, right. Are, we are the only rational beings that were created. I mean, with, with a body. Obviously, the angels are rational creatures too. But, you know, the author reminds us that the fathers of the church said, you know, every Sunday is the eighth day. You know, the earth was created, i.e. in seventh day, seven days on the seventh day, you rested. But the eighth day is that day of of Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. it's that day of celebration. It is the, the the church exists. He says as a corporate body to make Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. and Sunday is that day of Thanksgiving, the day of Eucharist. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, and and how many people think of it that way? Not not that many. Well, I mean, you know, they say they do, but even just the modern idea of celebration has just become so corrupted. You know, the idea of celebrating it it brings to mind excessive alcohol and, and self-indulgence and that kind of thing, when instead celebration it should be in its highest form, uh, should be closely tied to, to what the liturgy is meant to do. So we perform a thanksgiving. So I like how he identifies the vice that we need to overcome in order to really appreciate each of the five thoughts that, or elements that he presents. So what do I need to outgrow to find Aslan bigger, you know, to find the Eucharist bigger, to make, and by bigger, what they mean is more important, right, to understand it better. He right. says self-love or selfishness, self-centeredness is probably what we need to overcome in order to acknowledge a reality that's larger than we are, right? Right. Because the idea is what sin is, meaning is tending towards oneself. It's like Narcissus, you know, looking at one's own beauty, right? One's right. own accomplishments, curving in and upon itself, whereas the idea of love is always outward looking, right? Whether right. it's love of friends, love of family, love of God, whatever it is, it's always, it requires us to raise our heads and to look out. Whereas sin is curved up and all about me, right? So um, a person, as we get older, we must age in thanksgiving as well. We must age as thankful people. 
in order to revive this Eucharistic Thanksgiving. There's nothing wrong with the world so long as we take it as a pathway to God. So I thought that was interesting too, like his assessment of the function of the world. But we misuse and abuse the world if we forget our final end and settle down in it because the temporal is only temporal, after all. (laughs) People forget about. Worldliness means taking the world without reference to God. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Worldliness means taking the world without reference to God. We will find the Eucharist as Thanksgiving bigger as we grow out of the vice of self-love, self-centeredness, selfishness, narcissism, into the virtue of humility. So that would be the virtue, right? Right. So we want to get over ourselves and think less of ourselves. Because what's humility? Humility is thinking less of ourselves. It's not thinking, okay, it's not thinking less about ourselves. It's thinking less of ourselves, meaning Instead of checking ourselves every time, what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, thinking about ourselves so much. It's you said that way. in a in a lecture recently at Bible study, and in the small groups, I can't tell you how many people put that down is what they took away from that lecture. And humility is is something that is probably um, not thought about quite enough, to say the least. And with humility, I think that that, um, you know, Christ becomes larger in your life because you know who he is and who you are and what that relationship is. And you understand that you cannot merit heaven. It is a free gift through graces given to us. And what we do with that determines, you know, where we're going to ultimately end up, I guess you could say. Absolutely. This is what he quotes somebody, Jean Croiset, the general dispositions which we ought to bring to communion are mm-hmm. profound humility and sincere acknowledgement of our poverty, which would engender a certain spiritual hunger, which indicates that we have need. It's not yes. like we're just there doing the, the, the Almighty a favor by showing up. You know, mm-hmm. We actually are hungry and we need these food. We need a great purity of heart and an ardent love of Jesus Christ, or at least an ardent desire, desire. of loving him. Mm-hmm. Keep seeking, keep seeking, keep seeking. True liturgy should be the continual thanksgiving for the goods with which God has blessed us. But alas, we offer defective liturgy in which we use God as a means to our own end. The safest and shortest course is to renounce, forget, and abandon self, and through faithfulness to God, to think no more of it. Again, that definition of humility, right? Right. The second element is fellowship, or koinonia, as it is in the Greek. And it's a Fellowship based on a sharing something in common. And that's important. That's what the church is based on, right? The ecclesia right. is, or those who are called out for a certain purpose from the world, or which is the root of our word for church, is a group of people who are in koinonia. But it's a unique fellowship. It's not a sports club. You know, we don't all root for the Kentucky Wildcats. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We don't, it's not we're not a knitter's circle. We're not a um, gardening club or, or a f- finance club. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We are brought together with an interest which is out of this world, right? Thanksgiving and holiness. So what vow- vice would we have to outgrow in order to find this mystery bigger? It's envy, which is true. I mean, just to function well in a group, you need to get over yourself and not envy or be jealous of other people's blessings or good fortune, good fortune, right? 
Right. So we will grow in proportion to our aging in love, in charity. Loving our neighbor is to wish him well and perfect in perfect charity treats the interests of the neighbor as our own. An example, we're all praying for our dear Juliet uh, from Texas right now, who was with us on the pilgrimage, who's undergoing a stent as we speak. That is putting her interests before ours because we want to spend the time to pray for her because she's asked us for our prayers and because it's the right thing to do. Right. But finally, we're going to close with this thought. Love of neighbor is not disconnected from liturgical praise of God, which is, I think, very interesting. Benevolence increases the glory of God because love of our neighbor consists in loving his virtues, desiring them for him, that God may be glorified in him. The love for God and man then both concur to the end, one end, that God may be praised and worshipped, which is true. I mean, you have a true Christian community. There's nothing they love to do than to get together and praise the Lord, right? Thanksgiving. Praise and worship. Praise and worship and celebrate the Eucharist. Join us for um, as we unpack the other three qualities or thoughts on Eucharistic revival. Thank you for joining us.